I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Kelly White, wine writer for Venice, also sommelier at Press Restaurant in St. Helena, and author of Napa Valley Then and Now on the show. Hello, how are you? Great, how are you? Great to see you. Nice to see you. So you were working in New York for a while. I remember when you were at Veritas. Yeah, Veritas was the last job I had before leaving for California. So I was there for a little bit less than two years in um, 2009, 10, and I think a little bit of eight. What was that like? It was incredible. It was it was uh, it was a dream come true. It was really my first proper sommelier job, and in a lot of ways, kind of my first real restaurant job. Tim Kopeck likes to hire inexperienced sommeliers and then train them in his method. So it was a great place to learn. I can't imagine a better one. And uh, you know, the education there was the list was insane. You know, I, every night in that restaurant, we were opening Rousseau and Rumier. You know, it was Cachetry once a week you know, Mounier once a week, DRC every night, you know, just so glad that that happened because I don't know too many places where you can say that. And what was that era like for New York? I mean, what was the scene like wine-wise? Well, you know, um, it wasn't a super vibrant time. This was still a really bad economy. So when I talked to some of the other sommeliers that worked there before me, you know, Josh Nadel, Patrick Capiello, et cetera, et cetera, they had much wilder times, you know, crazy wines all the time. What I witnessed was a much slower and stripped down version of that it was still a lot to take in i don't know if i could have absorbed any more um than i did but it was definitely slow it was a slow time in new york for sure and how did you end up dealing with that what did you do next so scott had opened clo my fiance scott brenner and uh, had opened clo and then that had failed sort of the right as the market crashed and we started to talk about leaving New York and trying something new. And for Scott, that was wanting to try his hand at winemaking. And so we started to look around in the various winemaking regions where we had contacts because we couldn't really afford to just go back to school. We needed to go to a wine region where we could also work, you know, keep the lights on. So we got put in touch with Leslie Rudd and Leslie knew Scott from his Oriole days, but I had never met Leslie. And I've actually never met him either. Who is he? In? He is the owner of Rudd Winery. He was, until very recently, the owner of Dean and DeLuca. He owns Oakville Grocery, and then he started a restaurant called Press, 
but he's from the Midwest. He comes from a family that opened like the third or the fourth wine distributor in Kansas upon the, that state's repeal of prohibition. So he's got a long family history in uh, the food and wine business. He moved to Napa in the 90s to start his own brand and then has expanded in every way possible in food and wine. He even donated a wing on the CIA where they do the wines, wine studies and sponsors master sommeliers. I mean, he's very, very involved. So it's wonderful to be a part of that. So Leslie, interestingly, the restaurant offered us both the job and allowed us to share because originally we were thinking that one of us would work and the other one would stage and, you know, we'd swap. But in this instance, uh, we were given the option to split the wine directorship. And that That's was unusual. It was really unusual. But, you know, it was interesting because the at that time, the chef and the GM were married. So they already sort of had a couple's friendly work environment. And so we came in and we and we shared the job. And that started in uh, May of 2010. What was that transition like for you to go from New York sommelier to St. Helena sommelier? Uh, well, um, it was interesting. It was interesting because for a lot of reasons, it's a difficult, I think it's hard to live anywhere right after coming from New York. There's definitely a huge period of adjustment. And Napa is, even though it's fairly cosmopolitan, it's still an agricultural place. So it's definitely a kind of drop in a few gears, um, just in terms of life speed, getting used to driving everywhere, you know, all that stuff. And the restaurant was definitely an adjustment because we were effectively, even though the restaurant had been there for five years, building that wine program from scratch because they had, you know, a single page wine list. It was nice, but Leslie had asked us to build, quote unquote, the world's greatest Napa Valley wine list, but Napa Valley only. And that was a big challenge because, first of all, we didn't necessarily know a whole lot about Napa Valley wines and we knew the basics, but also because, you know, we were worried that it wasn't going to be a real range so I'm, in our earliest conversations with Leslie, he was like, okay, you need to build the best Napa Valley wine list in the world. We were like, okay, all Napa wines with Burgundy and a little Riesling and some champagne. And he was like, no, just just Napa. And we were like, okay, so no Burgundy, but maybe some Riesling and champagne. And, you know, it, it kind of took a, a while for it to sink in. And we were like, wow, we're really, okay, what are we going to do? And so our first thought was that historical wines might be interesting. We had tried some in New York Scott more than myself, but we didn't know the extent to what was drinking, how far back in time you could go, you know, who had big libraries, et cetera. So it was a real learning process. And what form did that take? I mean, what were some of the first moves that you made when you got there? The first big vertical we bought was Randy Dunn. We showed up at, you know, Dunn's winery and tasted through some things and then said, you know, we'll take six bottles of everything effectively. But you decided right away that you wanted to start focusing on older wine. Yeah, right away. But we didn't know if there would be much interest. So we wanted to kind of start slow. So the list actually grew pretty slowly, I think, over the first year. And why would you think that there wouldn't be much interest? I mean, you know, a lot of times when we think about good wine, we think about older wine. Why do you think that there was some skepticism there? I think we were still working off of a kind of a New York attitude. And, and in New York, there really wasn't, at least in the sommelier community and the wine community in general, that we were a part of, hadn't heard, been a lot of talk about California wines at that moment in time. That was sort of, now you see California wine all over New York. But back in that time, 2009, 2010, when we were making this change, you know, nobody talked about Napa. And certainly there was very little old Napa wines or old California wines to be had. 
it, so it wasn't anything we had any experience serving or talking about or having anybody ask us about. So, and we frankly didn't know how good they would be, if any, you know, on and on what scale. But we were very confident. We knew that, that Don would age well. I mean, that's sort of known. That was kind of the guy that probably got a lot of respect in New York at that time already for being very age-worthy. So that was a very safe place to start. And then um, another major, major, major move um, that happened right away was the Barney Rhodes had passed away a year or two prior, and his wine cellar came up on the market through a local merchant. And we kind of came to it at the last minute, but we were able to secure a big chunk of it. And so, you know, Barney Rhodes owned Bella Oaks Vineyards, and he was actually, they were actually, he and his wife were the original planters of Martha's Vineyard, which they planted and then sort of sold to the Mays, who named it Martha's Vineyard, and then got out of the business and then came back in years later and started Bella Oaks. So they were big, big wine collectors, friends with Michael Broadbent, et cetera. And so the the quality of the wines was incredible. And it was an instant, huge, deep, very thorough vertical of heights, especially Bella Oaks specifically, and a lot of, you know, other really great BV, et cetera. And so that was sort of the two major first initial acquisitions. And and the response was really positive and really strong, both from locals and from tourists, because there's a high tourist traffic in Napa Valley. And there probably weren't a lot of other options at the time for restaurants focusing on older Napa. Yeah, no, there, I mean, now that's changed a little bit, but there were like the CI, the restaurant, the CIA had some old stuff. Tara had some old stuff. Some of the restaurants that had been around for a while had some, but this was really the first place that was focusing, you know, we were just really, and then the little initial positive response we got in the beginning was encouraging so that we went deeper you know, and that's that's evolved. And initially, you know, over the first couple of years, we went deep, deep, deep Cabernet. But then we started to get more comfortable with and confident with older whites, older Pinots, older Zinfandels has become a passion of mine recently. And it's shocking. You know, we've we really the quality across the board is incredible. The wines are also relatively undervalued, I think, for the quality. So that was kind of awesome because Napa, nobody's ever going to accuse Napa nowadays of being undervalued. The wines are really expensive. The current releases. The current releases. Yeah. Almost across the board. I mean, it's an expensive place to do business, but it's also been caught up in this kind of economic whirlwind. But anyway, it's a very expensive place. So I would say, I mean, on our wine list with very few exceptions of like Inglenook, et cetera, the older wines are almost always cheaper than the new releases still, even though the prices of the older wines has been really rising over the last five years. So in a way, you kind of saw that some wines were being undervalued and it was probably a learning experience for you as you opened bottles. Like, oh, hey, never tried this before. Exactly. And what was that like? I mean, what were you discovering on the floor as you started opening things? Well, we were flying, you know, we were flying blind when we bought all these wines. We had no idea of really knowing how good they were going to be. And that was a risky proposition because, you know, you're betting with other people's money. You don't want to get fired. So we, that's part of the reason why we went kind of slowly, but we relatively few bummers for wines, which was part of it is that we're very picky buyers with the older bottles. You know, we really comb through any possible defects, especially, you know, in the auction market, et cetera. But were there a lot of resources for you to read about? Could you find books that gave you tasting notes? No. So no, I mean, we, I, a little bit, but if there were like, for example, Michael Broadman's tasting notes which is one of my favorite books of all time, has maybe some BV notes, but really not a lot else. And also those notes are quite old. 
And then the notes that were, you know, on critical websites, et cetera, were either only went back so far or were also kind of out of date. So we had no one, you know, no resources really. And so that's sort of when the idea came to write it down, to write the guide that we wish we had when we moved here to start this wine program. So that was kind of the genesis of the book that you just wrote. Yeah, it was to catalog the tasting notes, kind of take the temperature where these wines are at today, and also to put together all the stories and all the things that we were learning on the ground in Napa that we had no idea about, you know, individual, the histories of individual vineyards and and winemakers and winery owners. And, you know, there was, it seemed like in Napa Valley, which does a very good job of marketing itself, the actual information is hard to find when you want to find it. Do you mean like for certain eras of wines? Yeah. Specific, well, I mean, yeah, across the board, but definitely also the older stuff because, you know, the emphasis, and this isn't unique to Napa, but the emphasis is always on what's next, what's coming next, who's the winemaker now. And a lot of websites, you know, if I wanted to look up, you know, who the winemaker was of such and such winery in 1993, you go to the website and generally that information has all been redacted and it's been completely removed and it's just about what's going on now. So even in with the individual producers' websites and their literature, you can't even trace back in time. And that was very frustrating. So these we would learn these things by having conversations and, you know, writing it all down to keep track of it and... Uh, then the idea for the book came and tried to put it all together. Because you wanted to be able to tell customers, oh, Tony Soder was the winemaker of this wine at that time, or this person was working the vineyards at that time. Exactly. And it wasn't even and it wasn't even just the customers, but a lot of the locals very quickly started asking Scott and I almost constantly, oh, who made this wine? You know, who made this 1974 or whatever? Where do the grapes come from? You know, what, and, it, and, and as we were uncovering all that, you know, each of these wines, we would kind of start out with the wine first since we were buying with, at least in the beginning, with little, you know, pre-knowledge and then opening the wine and then going back and talking to people and trying to figure out, okay, who made this, where to come from, what happened. And so... Probably because you really like the wine. Yeah, we You're really like the wine. You're like, this is wine. tasty. Who did this? <laughs> exactly. Who can I thank for this? So that was very exciting. You know, there was a little bit of a mystery and the unknown. We still have some mysteries on the wine list, things that we, we buy because it's interesting. And right now we're pouring with the tasting menu an old Muscat de Frontignan dessert wine from BV, which of course was never labeled with a vintage. And so it's in these great old medicine bottle looking bottles with these crazy corks. And the only information we have because we bought the original case was that it was shipped sometime in the 1970s. So we have no idea, you know, what, how old the base wine is, if it's a single vintage, if it's multiple ones. And, you know, we're very honest with the guests. We pour, we say, we don't really know when this wine is from, but isn't it really great? And people, you know, like that. And that's been kind of a fun aspect. Because you mentioned in the book how BV had a history of selling Muscat as sacramental wine during right. Prohibition. Right. So it could go back that far. In yeah. Terms of- I mean, it could, yeah, it could. It could be almost from any time. I mean, chances are... If it was shipped in the 70s, it was relatively recently bottled before it was shipped. So it's probably not that old, but we really don't know. But in terms of vine age, you know, you could be looking at 40-year-old Moscat de Frontignan vines by that time. Maybe. I mean, who knows, right? Absolutely. And one of the reasons that some of this history is is probably redacted is because it hasn't always been a family ownership like you'd see in Europe. I feel like if I talked to Egon Mueller and I said, who made the wines before you? He would say, well, the cellar master, you know, that worked for my father. Right, exactly. (laughs) You know, and there's probably less need to emphasize the new when it's your own family that's had the ownership. But 
a lot of the wineries that you document in the book have had a history of being sold. Exactly. And the new owners maybe are less interested in popularizing who used to own it. Yeah, completely. Yeah, things change fast. Even the the vineyards, you know, not just the wineries. There's a lot of buying and selling that goes on, a lot of money moving around in Napa all the time. In fact, since I finished the book, I think at least five of the major wineries in the book have sold. With Araujo, you made a note that it had just been sold. In the yeah, book. instead of re because I, I wrote that piece from Conversations with Barton Daphne, and then I finished it, and I was happy with it, and then it sold. So I thought, well, I can either rewrite this whole thing, talking to the new owners, or just make a little addendum. So that's what I did. But then in other ones, you know, Quixote has since sold, and but it was sold at such a point where I was already so long done with the book that I didn't go back and edit it. So, But it, in a way, it's... There's so many eyes on Napa Valley right now and so many people more talented than me, you know, tasting all the new releases and cataloging all the the movements. I was much more interested in digging through the past and presenting that and presenting a, a snapshot because there hasn't been a great Napa book written, at least from an academic wine perspective in a long time. But there were several and to go back and read them is incredibly illuminating and you get a picture of what was going on. And so, you know, I recognize this book is it's not going to be too long before it's out of date. Which but, is amazing to say because it's like a thousand pages. Yeah. Like it's quite comprehensive. <laughs> yes, it's big. It's maybe too big, um, but it'll provide a, a really interesting snapshot in time. And it's the book that, you know, I wish I had five years ago. You know, talking about Araha, one of the things I thought was interesting about that write up is how many other wineries and personalities that winery touched on yeah or the history of that vineyard touched on yeah and you know i bet you discovered a lot of those kind of parallels where another winery used the grapes from that vineyard it became this it evolved into this there was a new ownership then that winemaker was there for a while what were the changes that stood out for you yeah well just to stay on araho for a minute the whole gosh what is it the 72 is it the 72 or the 73 the isley cabernet First came up in conversation with Araujo because they had they did a good job. I don't know if they're still there of having all the old bottles of Araujo on display. You know, so they they always did a really good work in preserving the history. But the that vintage was bottled by Con Creek, and Con Creek was really just getting its start then. And Con Creek had kind of a complicated startup history. They had a, a vineyard, but um, they were selling the fruit, and they needed to buy. They got a winery space, but they didn't have any equipment. And so when a collective cooperative winemaking kind of group of friends called Lincrest, which is the site of now Marston, went out of business, Bill Collins from Concrete purchased all of their winery equipment and it happened to come with the wine that was in the tanks, which was this Isley fruit. And so it's just, you know, I heard that story from three different sides and talking to Bill Collins and talking to the Marstons and then talking to the Arajos and Everything, because Napa is a very small place and people move jobs a lot or because things flip around, ownership, et cetera, there's so much interconnection. And it's, to me, that was really fascinating, was drawing all those parallels. Like when you had Rick Foreman on here, you know, that he used to make Newton and then also Kongsgaard was at Newton and Kongsgaard used to make Arietta and Livingston Moffat for a minute. And, you know, you just, you kept seeing the names kind of come up again and again in different contexts. So I really wanted to just straighten that out, you know, connect the dots and draw the lines and make it something that would be really easily cross-referenced. So if you, you know, obviously this is not a new invention, but if you go to the index and you look up Kongsgaard or Rick Foreman, you know, they pop up throughout the book. Almost no one in the book is just in their section. There's crossovers all the time. And it's, to me, that's very interesting. 
when I was reading the book, it kind of felt like the history of a place that was a small place that became a much bigger place. People were saying in different eras, oh, who can make wine here? Let's have this guy consult for us. Or we want to start a winery. Winemakers could work for, for us. Let's hire that person. And then later that person developed their own winery and the pond expanded a little bit. Right. And then there was a lot of growth with new wineries. And so there was the kind of expansion into the consultant world, consulting and knowledgeists. Mm-hmm. And we saw waves of that. But it, it kind of felt like, yeah, like a pond that got bigger and bigger. And you were kind of charting how the different inhabitants of that moved along with time. Yeah. And, and, and it's there's a broader context for all of it, because something that I thought was really interesting was reading about the rise of UC Davis and how and why that came to be. Just, you know, that the fact that the new model of winery ownership that came after the judgment of Paris in the late 70s and 80s wasn't necessarily people that were coming to Napa Valley because they themselves wanted to make wine. They were coming to Napa Valley because they wanted to own a winery and wanted to hire a winemaker. And suddenly being a winemaker in the United States is a viable profession. And so this coincides with the growth of UC Davis. And suddenly you're getting a whole nother career path for young people that says, I can be a winemaker when I grow up. Whereas before it was a little bit more part and parcel with owning vines, owning the land. It's just a different kind of estate model shift that then fed into this whole other thing. And the the rise of winemakers that don't own any vines or lands themselves, it's like a huge, you know, hundreds and hundreds of winemakers in Napa Valley now. You gave some numbers in the book, but what do you assume to be the number of labels in terms of winery labels produced out of Napa today versus how many winery facilities there are? It's hard to keep track. I worked with Napa Valley Vintners to get a number, and I want to say that it's something like 350 brick-and-mortar wineries, which is a lot for a small place, a lot. But then there are a lot of custom crush labels and people making wine on other people's bonds. So it's definitely over 500 labels that work in Napa, and probably a lot more than that. I read in some article, somebody just off the cuff listed a fact that, oh, there's over a thousand labels in Napa Valley. And, you know, to me, that seemed high, but it's definitely possible. It's very hard to count. So in other words, people rent out space in other people's wineries to make their wine or store their wine. Yeah. And and that's becoming anyone that's young making wine in Napa Valley. It's kind of the way you have to do it because the buy-in is so expensive now. So most, I would, you know, most winemakers probably under the age of 40 or even 50 own almost nothing. They have these virtual brands, you know, they're renting out space in somebody's winery or a custom crush facility and they're buying fruit and they don't own a, you know, vines, they don't own a winery. So that has become a really common way of making wine, not just in Napa, but all of California. It's hard and getting harder to establish your own actual estate and the proper estate model. Along those lines, there probably is a rise in the need for consulting and knowledge. How have you seen that development? A part of that is is that a lot of these brands are making really small quantities. So there's no need to have their own dedicated winemaker. There isn't enough work, you know, so you get these consultants that take on a lot of little projects. And a lot of times those projects grow. I mean, you look at somebody like Heidi Barrett, and I want to say almost all of the projects she takes on are startups. And then she nurtures them to a certain point, and then they either get their own winery and need a person on the ground and or they just grow to the point or she moves on, whatever. But yeah, consulting winemakers are are huge in Napa. And it has a lot to do with the small quantities of wine being made. 
it seems like there were waves where this consulting analogist seemed to have the zeitgeist and was hired by a lot of wineries and then maybe kind of became less fashionable. And then another consulting analogist with the zeitgeist of that time would kind of come in, maybe yeah. fueled by critics. I don't know. Oh, I think that Napa's a very points-oriented place, and they're really, you know, aligned to the critic. This is, of course, speaking very generally and very broadly. Not everybody is like this. But I think that there's a lot of kind of almost competitive winemaking happening in Napa, and you want to hire, you know, the guy of the moment because of the, you want some of that sizzle to come off on your brand. You know, you want to capitalize on that person's fame. And so you see these consulting winemakers now, they're rock stars. They're making huge money and making wines for the top, top guys. And it seems like just a handful of people. And you're right. You know, they come in and out of favor. You know, they definitely seem to take turns in and out of the spotlight. Um, But I think that one of the things that's interesting about Napa is that a lot of the wineries that are starting now that are relatively new are because they have such huge buy-ins. They're being started by these these men and women that were, you know, moguls and ran huge companies or, you know, were were really powerful people in business and finance, et cetera. And you see that kind of alpha dog approach to business kind of affecting the the wine industry because they want to hire the best. You know, it's not just about having a brand and having this bucolic life, it's a little bit more competitive than that. And I think it has everything to do with the level of success and the the level at which these people were operating in their fields previous to coming to Napa. But that seems to play into the difficulty of understanding all the different vintages when they might be switching out different key players yeah. to kind of follow the trend or what's popular at a given time. And sometimes that I've found that I've really liked certain analogists or vineyard managers, and I follow through the wineries that they have worked at, and mm-hmm. I liked it that winery at that time. Right. Which is a funny thing to say. It's kind of like, yes, it's great terroir, but when this guy was, or this lady was interpreting it, I really liked it. And then when that changed, you know, I liked it less, or sometimes the opposite. But, you know, because of those shifts, it's, I think it's harder sometimes to understand across a number of vintages. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I know a lot of proprietors and estate owners probably think there's too much emphasis on the winemaker. And they said, you know, this is the this is the brand. This is our terroir. But, you know, truly, I think that generally speaking, the Napa Valley, the wines are very style driven, you know. So for me, I taste more similarities within a particular winemaker's portfolio than I will within a brand's history over the course of several winemakers. And whether that's good or bad, you know, that's a whole other topic of conversation. But I think the winemaker makes a huge mark, generally speaking, in Napa wines, maybe more than other places. So when you got there, did you see some of the economic effects that you had witnessed in New York playing out also in California in terms of where the economy was at? Yeah, you know, when I moved there in 2010, there were a lot of for sale signs. This was sort of the time that flash sale sites started popping up. And so you would see people dumping, you know, big vintages, not necessarily exclusive to Napa nor specialized there. But I mean, I don't see for sale signs anymore when I drive around. And I'm not talking about major wineries, but homes and little vineyards and because there's still a lot of little backdrop rural places in Napa. It's not all super developed. And now I don't see for sale signs anymore. It definitely feels like the economy is recovered. I see much less the flash sites have sort of evolved or died. You don't see that particular kind of hurry by now thing happening necessarily anymore. But it, in a sense, not to 
to make lemonade out of these lemons, but it, it helped us build the wine list because I think a lot of wineries were felt very uncertain financially and they were willing to part with big chunks of their library. I mean, partly out to support and because they were excited to have their older vintages, but I think also a lot of it was economic. And in fact, a lot of the wineries where we used to buy directly from the winery have shut their libraries to us now. Not too many, but some of them. I mean, they recognize it's a depleting resource, but they also, I think, are swimming in more financially secure waters now, generally speaking across the board in, in Napa and in the wine industry at large right now is a lot more certain solid footing than it was in 2010. 2010, 11, 12, 13, that's a diversity of vintages yeah. in terms of conditions. What did you hear when winemakers would talk to you about what they were up to? Yeah, well, when I moved to Napa in May of 2010, it was raining. And uh, I was promised no rain from April to November. But yeah, it's been a big, big swings. And interestingly, you know, getting there in 2010 and tasting the wines, those wines aren't shy wines. You know, they, they have a lot of power, but they have a measure of restraint, let's say, that other vintages maybe don't have. And then that was followed by 2011, which was a really hard year for Cabernet. Very, very good year for things like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but really hard year for Cabernet. And there was a lot of talk. Uh, maybe they were just telling me what I wanted to hear about this kind of pendulum swinging of style. And Napa was heading back in a direction that was of an era of restraint and et cetera. And this is also around the time that Parker retired from Napa. And so there was a lot of chatter about uh, making more restrained wines just generally across the board. But then, you know, in 2012, 2013 came, speaking really generally, everybody went back to making these big rich, powerful wines. And so, you know, I don't necessarily personally as somebody on the ground tasting these wines every day, don't necessarily see a particular trajectory of style across the board that anything's changing. And instead I see more kind of stylistic camps. You know, you've got your Kathy Corisons and over here and you get your Schraders over there and, and that's fine. You know, I think that there's room for all kinds of styles and wines from Napa Valley. And that's part of what made it exciting to me because when I moved there, I thought everything was cult cab. That's all that Napa had to offer. And I was very surprised and excited at the diversity at all levels. You know, even at the top cult cab, there's more diversity in style than I thought. And then, you know, in the, the quote unquote beneath that at, at lower price points to see a range of really exciting white wines and all kinds of styles within the Cabernet Ouvre. And it was just, it's got a lot more diversity than I ever had thought looking from New York. When you were exploring old vintages on the list and on the floor, did you find diversity from that era or those eras as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hear, you know, you hear a lot of people from other regions saying that there's no real vintage variation in California. And I just don't believe it. I mean, it's obviously it's less extreme and it's a little bit more stable than a lot of more marginal climates. But in tasting all of these, these older vintages, there's huge swings in the vintage. And then there's also, you can see big shifts in kind of philosophies of style across the decades. Like the wines from the eighties can be sort of lumped together stylistically in a certain way versus the ones from the seventies and then the nineties go in a certain direction. And there is a, there is a real measurable across the board shifts in style obviously exceptions abound but but that's been very interesting to chart so did you find that usually it was a more restrained style in earlier times well it's hard to say now you know because i'm having these wines 40 50 60 years later but i will say that the wines from the 60s and 70s have aged incredibly well um 
in talking to the people that were on the ground making those wines and drinking them when they were released. By all accounts, they were really monstrously tannic wines, like almost crude and needed aging. And that was even, I think, maybe a little bit more accepted than it is now. And then in the 1980s, when you had the rise of UC Davis and these winemakers were kind of flooding the market and they were very clinically trained to make clean, perfect wines. And you also had a, a movement of food wines, et cetera. The wines got pretty restrained. Unfortunately, there was a lot of acidification, which I think is part of California winemaking in general. It seems like people still do it a lot. They were doing it even in the glorious wines of the 70s and the 60s. But in the 80s, it sort of seemed to take a a bigger hit and filtration kind of rose up. So a lot of the wines from the 80s can be a little hard and a lot lighter than the flanking eras, talking about like the 90s or the 70s. There are still great wines in the 80s, but in general, they tend to be a little bit more light bodied. And then, of course, you know, in the 90s, we all know what happened, the rise of the cult labels and just things getting steadily, steadily riper and more extracted. When you started to show wines from the 50s, 60s, 70s to current day winemakers in Napa, what were their reactions like when they were drinking them? Oh, it was it was so incredibly supportive. It was it was one of the one of my favorite things about that restaurant is how much a part of the community we are and how many winemakers. I mean, it's like a, you know, winemaking watering hole, winemaker watering hole. These guys are there every night and they are using these wines as an excuse to learn about the history of the place where they're working and making wine and sometimes vineyards they're working with now. And there's a lot of excitement, a lot of excitement, even within the community. It's been great. And the wines, you know, they drink really well. They're just, they're beautiful. Have you seen that played out in people's versions of how they approach their own wines? These kind of experiences? A lot of the chatter about the the new generation of winemakers in California and in Napa, a lot of these guys are very historically minded. Um, so not only are they dealing kind of outside the Cabernet zone, um, they're doing more funky whites and blends, but they seem to be very interested in both old vines and in a more historic style of winemaking. So a perfect example is Graham McDonald, who happens to have access to old vines of Tokalon, but also stylistically is very aware of the way wines were made in the in the 70s and the 60s and is super informed by that. So Definitely, I see a lot of interest in history among these new guys. It's not to say that the people that are making the big blockbuster Cabernets aren't interested in history per se, but I see the new guys have a lot of questions about, you know, how are these things being made? Uh, Kate Modi, who's establishing Just Sued, felled a bunch of redwood trees on his property and is planning on making a redwood fermentation tank. So, I mean, that Which says is everything. traditional to the area. Very traditional for, for very, very, very long time. Some wineries still have them. Were you getting notes like Redwood in wines that you were opening? I can't say. I don't think so. I get, there are, I get certain um, things in a lot of these old Cabernets specifically. I get sandalwood a lot, but I don't know if that's just part of the wine, the way Napa Cabernet aged, or if it has anything to do with Redwood or American Oak. I really, I couldn't say. Um, and I haven't had any current release wines that are definitely coming out of Redwood. So I haven't had that chance, but I'm looking forward to tasting Caton's wines and figuring out what Redwood, in fact, does do to a wine. Yeah, I think Morgan Twain Peterson is playing with that a little bit too, but obviously not with Napa fruit. But Yeah, yeah, I know. These guys, it's very interesting. There's a lot of looking back in the in the newer generation, and I think that that's, that's exciting because personally, 
you know, a lot of the wines made in this more flashy, super extracted, ripe, long hang time style that are already fading. You know, the 97 vintage is a perfect example. Those Do wines you feel are, that way? Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't think the modern style of, of winemaking will age as long. I mean, how long does a wine have to age? You know, that's a personal, it's a personal preference. But I hope that these guys, Kate and Graham McDonald, et cetera, that their wines, I, I see no reason why they shouldn't age, you know, as well as the wines from the 60s and the 70s. You said there could be between 500 and 1,000 winery labels in mm-hmm. Napa. You chose about 200 for the book. Mm-hmm. What were your criteria for selection? I mean, did it have to do with having a longstanding history in the area, or how did you choose? Well, I gave a lot of um, preference to uh, wineries that have had longstanding histories so long as I had a lot of tasting notes to back that up. Um, I didn't want to spend 20 pages talking about a winery's history and then have three tasting notes. So it's really in a lot of ways based off the wine list at press. So very specifically in tune with that list and my experience tasting those wines every night. So that was part of the selection process of the wineries that I had the greatest exposure to. There's a lot of great brands that are not in the book for a variety of reasons, but typically that's because of exposure. You know, they just weren't wines that I was exposed to. So, and I also specifically, I, instead of picking, like, say, my top 200 favorite wineries, I was much more interested in presenting the range of wineries and wine styles. So you do have newer brands, you have older, more established brands, you have more sort of popular brands like Rombauer's in there, and they have a very, very, very interesting story and were really important to... Napa's history, especially in the 80s. They were one of the first custom crush facilities where a lot of brands got their start. And, you know, a range of styles as well. So, again, you know, the purpose is education. And I wanted to convey all the things that I was surprised to learn about Napa. But there definitely is an emphasis on older uh, wineries with long histories and lots of older tasting notes. must be very different to write a profile on someone like BV or Behringer or Louis Martini versus a profile on somebody like Abru or Arietta, where it's a, a newer winery. Yeah, and it's very different. It's very different, and and um, a lot of research was required because a lot of these older wineries. I mean, some of them do a good job of cataloging their own histories, but then a lot of them just sort of haven't. So there's a great, there's several great books on Napa history. Actually, Thomas Pinney wrote two. Well, that's just about California, and then Charles Sullivan has his book on Napa history, and then there in talking to the older vintners getting their personal stories. I mean, Peter Mandavi spent three hours with me, you know, a couple of years ago. I think he was 99 at the time, you know, and these experiences have been incredible to write down these guys. And there's also a great oral history at the Bancroft Library in Berkeley of interviews of winery owners and winemakers that have since passed on that, you know, you're never going to be able to talk to these guys again. And these are transcripts of interviews. So there's a lot of information out there. It just hadn't really necessarily been always synthesized. What are some of the things that you learned or stories that you heard that really resonated? The Mandavi's family story is incredibly impressive. Um, and, and I also really... The Mondavis. Yeah, the Mondavis. Yeah, the whole thing, the whole, it's a whole dramatic history. And then the histories of the individual winemakers, like John Consgard, multi-generation Napin, these people, how they, how they went from just being somebody doing something else to actually choosing a career in wine and how that affected a lot of the stories. Do you see a lot of multi-generational Napa people figure in the book? Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, but it's definitely increasingly rare. I was having this conversation with Dory Seavey the other day because Seavey is, is a winery that I have a lot of respect and admiration for. They make great wines. They still do. 
And she made an interesting point where we were talking about just estate models. And she said, you know, my family, we we own the vines, we own the winery, they have a winemaker, but then they also are the ones out selling the selling the wine. It's a multi-generational thing. It's, and she said, we're one of the few vertically integrated wineries kind of left in Napa Valley. Everything is getting a little bit more parsleyed out. You know, it doesn't mean that it's worse wine if it's not all owned by the same family for multiple generations, but you definitely see that less. You know, sometimes your children just don't want to take over your business. Stag Sleep Wine Cellars is a perfect example. Warren Winiarski has children. I don't, I haven't met them, but, you know, he sold to a corporation rather than pass it on. There was nobody to pass it on to. So things do move quickly financially. Wineries turn over fast. And it seems like with the book, the scope of the history was so broad that you've probably seen that for decades of wineries turning over in the history and the research that you did. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, um, a lot of chronicling and tracking down various sales of corporations to other corporations. You know, I think again with Kong Creek is a great example because they were sold to, I want to say U.S. Tobacco and then U.S. Tobacco was bought by what someone that ended up becoming the Saint Michel group. And I mean, there's a lot of, it's not just passing on to different families. Sometimes there's corporations selling other corporations or getting kind of gobbled up by bigger corporations or splitting off. So yeah, it's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, dots to connect. And you also sort of set the scene in your book about AVAs, about appellations, and you talk about how they can be problematic and sometimes more based on inclusion rather than exclusion, but also the differences between them. What did you find when you were researching that? Yeah, I mean, the Appalachian thing is really interesting in Napa Valley. Like I said in the book, it's I see it as a kind of a work in progress, and it, it can be useful to the consumer, but it also can be a little bit misleading because talking about the Stag's Leap District, you know, specifically why the region was fingered as being worthy of having its own appellation is because it's a very specific confluence of qualities. It's kind of small, there's the Palisades, there's the wind movement. And then when they were drawing up the boundaries for the appellation, instead of being like, okay, this is the geologically distinct area, this is the Stag's Leap District, um, they draw along property lines. The ABAs are always follow property lines and properties can extend. And also pretty much in the history of the Napa Valley appellation system that I've read, anybody that lobbied for inclusion was granted it. So even though specifically the area that you would visually recognize as the Stag Leap District is small, uh, legally it, it's significantly larger than that. And then also I think, you know, I mean, this is just my opinion, but the fact that the Valley Flora Appalachians, Rutherford, Oakville, et cetera, can go all the way across the valley, to me that's less interesting. I see more change from east to west than north to south as far as in, you know, the Mayakamas range and then those foothills and then the actual valley floor and then the foothills of the Vacas and then the Vacas. There's more, for me, tasting through the wines of an appellation like Oakville. There's a big difference between eastern Oakville wines and western Oakville wines. I think more than there is necessarily between an Oakville wine and a Rutherford wine necessarily. How does that east-west difference play out? It's, it's interesting because... The Vacas and the Mayakamas don't necessarily get measurably, significantly measurably different rainfall, but the aspect to the sun is really important. So the Mayakamas, which in Napa Valley casts, uh, the vineyards will face the east. They're protected from the hot afternoon suns. They have the more gentle morning sun, and those hills are very verdant. Whereas the wines on the west-facing slopes of the Vacas, the hillsides look more scorched. You know, there's very little green vegetation. And the wines can be very, very, very intense. You know, not always. Again, there's a lot of stylistic mitigating factors. But generally speaking, the wines in the, the western-facing 
hillsides that get the warm afternoon sun can be a little bit more, you know, sun-kissed, if you will. And did you see a real difference between valley floor and mountain? I do, yeah. And that's, you know, very textural, obviously, the tannins. Because tannin, you know, with Cabernet, everybody talks about tannin. And I, when I taste wines with winemakers in Napa a lot, they're always talking about the texture and the tannins. And I find people are talking about that and critics talk about the texture and the tannins in Napa Valley wines way more than they're talking about, you know, the perfume necessarily. But I feel like a lot of times how they're talking about it is, oh, if they're present, that's a barrier to sales. I think that's an unfortunate, yeah, for me, again, this is just my personal opinion, but I mean, A, I like to drink older wines, but B, I think that Cabernet is a grape that should age. I find that when Cabernet is forcibly made to be super delicious when young, that that wine is less interesting to me personally. I think tannin is a signature of the grape. And I do see a lot of emphasis, which I think is unfortunate on kind of getting the tannin out. What can we do to to mitigate this tannin? And it's the tannin that protects the wine, you know, and I, and I, and, and works with food and it's important components. So there is a lot of talk and emphasis on how do we get rid of these pesky tannins. One of the things I've found so interesting in your book is that you chart how phylloxera really changed the valley and how it changed the grape makeup of the valley and really led to the dominance of Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa. Yeah, I was, you know, I was shocked when I started looking through the old grape crush reports, because they're all online, you know, mostly, that Cabernet wasn't the dominant grape of Napa Valley until the early 90s. Because I think Uh, a lot of people would think it was earlier than that. Yeah, I just think now Napa has become so synonymous with Cabernet that people aren't aware of the of the big history of, because prior to Cabernet was Chardonnay, because the 80s were so white wine crazed, which, you know, you may or may not remember. And then prior to that, obviously, it was Zinfandel and Petit Syrah for a variety of reasons. But yeah, when Phylloxera, which had been present in the soils, there was big flooding in the late 80s, sort of spread it widespread. This timed with the early plantings from the 80s had been largely on AXR1, which is an insufficiently resistant rootstock. And so there was a widespread replanting in the late 80s and early 90s of vineyards. And that was what put Cabernet in statistical dominance. Prior to that, it, you know, it, was, it wasn't, it was there and it was present, but it wasn't the majority of grape. Now it is by far. One of the things that kind of plays into that is that you don't just talk about tasting notes for a range of vintages and a, and a brand or the history of the winemaking, but you also delve into the history of vineyards and vineyard replants that the winery controls. Yeah. And that was based on just questions I would get a lot. So a lot of the the winemakers and the people that come in and really dig into our wine list would always ask me, where do the fruit come from for this? Because it's not always clear. Now everything's pretty much a single vineyard in Napa. There, there are pr- probably more single vineyard Cabernets than there are blends of Cabernets. But, you know, for many, many decades, the vineyard wasn't necessarily on the label. So tracing back the fruit sources... Uh, it's very hard to do. It's certainly not completely complete in all the sections, but it, it at least kind of narrows it down. And um, and I'm very interested in vine age and, you know, who values old vines and who doesn't and how that affects the wine. And so I tried to put in, you know, dates of replants whenever possible, but it's a lot of information. I mean, it's a lot of information. I heard a figure recently that the average vine age in Napa Cab was 20 years. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but. I'm not sure. I haven't heard a, a, a number like that, but I'm surprised it's even that high. There are a lot of people that talk about the economic lifespan of a vine, not the actual, you know, physiological one. And so there seems to be thinking that 
after 15 years, you're not really getting your money's worth out of that ground anymore. And so you see a lot of replants. And unfortunately, you see a lot of replants without letting the ground go fallow, which I think is kind of skipping a step, which makes it all the more special when you see a winery like Dominus, which is sitting on probably some of the most valuable vineyard land in all of Napa Valley, leaving vineyard parcels fallow for years. That's very responsible farming. That's a situation where you have a producer owner who's got experience in Bordeaux right. and, and probably has had situations where they're trying to get more vigor and fertile soil right. coming to Napa. Because I can think of that too. In Burgundy, a part of Latasha is still fallow and another part was just recently replanted because they're trying to get rid of any potential problem with nematodes right. that might be in the soil. But I wonder, you know, because it seems like the fertility and the vigor so much higher in Napa where the line has to be drawn about laying things fallow. Yeah. Well, I mean, nematodes are a big issue in Napa Valley. And so is vine virus and other pests. I mean, there's a lot of reason to leave a field fallow. But when you add up the money that you're losing, all that wine that you're not making, I mean, it, and you compare that to the cost of buying the land in the first place or staying in the market at a certain amount of shares, it's crazy. You know, it's a big decision for a winery to make to leave to leave vineyard land fallow. And I don't, you know, you don't see too many fallow fields in Napa for too long. Usually things are ripped out and replanted right away. And one of the things I, I liked a lot about your book, because it, it's not so common that you find a wine region book that does this, uh, especially not for Napa, is that you really do converse about clonal material and rootstocks quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So I can get a sense of, oh, it, that's on St. George, or oh, that was on AXR1, that's why this happened, that's why maybe St. George is more susceptible to certain virus. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's all just uh, it's all parts of the puzzle, you know, and it creates a, a total a total picture. Did you see a certain waves of change in clonal material or rootstocks over time? In that oh, yeah. It's really interesting, actually. I mean, it's probably a worthy book on its own, but somebody that I thought was really fascinating and loved talking to was Dick Steltzner, which I don't think is probably a name that's really widely known. His, his brand was is, is good. It's gone through some changes. It's had, you know, rough patches, but... He's not maybe the most well-known name in, in Napa, but he was uh, a guy that had a hand in a lot of really important vineyards in Napa. And also he was really the first one to come out against AXR1. And he saved a lot of people from that. For example, like Philip Tony told me that Dick Steltzner was working, developing the vineyard at Keenan nearby on Spring Mountain, happened to lean over the fence one day and have a conversation with Tony, who was starting to plant his vineyard, who had planted the first half on AXR, and Dick was like, you know, I'm not so sure about this AXR1 business. All of these nurseries in Europe are saying it's it's not appropriate. And so Tony says, you know, he saved me from having to replant my entire vineyard. I only had to replant half of it. Um, and then he also, uh, Steltzner was very frustrated with the limited amount of clonal material available in Napa and worked really hard lobby to get things through. And then you have guys like John Caldwell who did the same thing because, you know, in the... In the 70s and 80s, there was very, there wasn't a lot of clonal diversity. And that really just started to come in kind of slowly. Uh, now you've got guys like Bruce Nyers, who's a winery I really like a lot, who's national sales manager for Kermit Lynch, influenced by his time in, in Europe and talking about heat-treated plant material. He won't work with any heat-treated clones. So he's, you know, there's just a, it's a, it's an interesting conversation. And I think it's, all part of the maturity and development of Napa. But yeah, the for a very long time, very little clonal diversity in Napa. As you started to see clone diversity, did you see changes in what wines tasted like? 
maybe I would have if I were there as it was happening. But looking back, tasting the wines now, I don't know what's just the age of the wine and the wine versus what's the clonal material. I, I don't know if I'm just more sensitive to it, but I taste clonal diversity more in, in Pinot Noir personally. But like a lot of these guys, you know, again, these young guys that are planting these vineyards, there's talk of the old school Napa combination of Clone 7 Cabernet on St. George rootstock. And when I taste these wines now, they do have a parallel to the wines of the 70s. You can kind of feel it. And that's considered to be sort of the classic Napa combination. Like the Meteor Vineyard uh, in Coombsville has a lot of Clone 7 on St. George and people that work with it are producing wines that they just feel more old school. But I also think that stylistically, people that would seek out something like that, specifically because it echoed a former time in Napa viticulture, are probably inclined to make wines that taste a little more old school anyway. So again, you know, style versus genetic composition, it's not always so cut and dry. Speaking about echoes, if prohibition hadn't happened, how do you think the industry would have developed? I think you have some knowledge of where it was going up until that occurrence and how big of a change that was. How did it lay out and is that really the genesis of what seems like the willingness or the way that Napa sometimes engages in self-erasure of its own history? There's a lot of history of self-erasure in Napa, yeah, absolutely. But it's it's interesting because it's not even just prohibition, but prior to prohibition it was huge phylloxera uh, in the 1890s, hu- that slashed vineyard land and also National Depression, there were a lot of economic forces. So of, obviously, prohibition was uniquely erasing, but there was a lot going on. But I was very, very, very surprised to learn that in the 1880s, kind of early 1890s, there were, oh, I don't have the figures in front of me, but a lot of wineries and a lot of planted vineyard land. And Napa didn't get there again until the 1980s. So it was 100 years later. And that's how vibrant the industry was back in the 1880s. So um, it was really on a path. It was really going to be a, you know, world-class wine growing region even back then. And then it just got walloped. And where do you see it going now? I mean, you have ears on the ground and you talked about the differences in vintage styles between 10, 11, 12, 13. But what do you hear when you talk to Napa wineries today? Well, obviously right now the big issue is the drought and, and the forest fires aren't aren't helping anybody's peace of mind. So yeah, the drought and water usage is a, is a huge, huge issue. I think that it depends on who you talk to, but it sounds like people that are planting new vineyards or replanting vineyards are taking a closer look at dry farming as it's something that is possible in a lot of portions of Napa Valley. Not everywhere can be dry farmed because of the soil, but I think that people are recognizing that you're going to need to do that because water scarcity is a huge factor. And what about soil? I mean, is it more complex than we understand? The Napa, Napa Valley is incredibly geologically diverse. Jonathan Swinchat wrote a great book called The Winemaker's Dance, and he writes a lot for World of Fine Wine magazine and does these regional profiles. And the reason why he wrote a book about Napa is not because he's rah-rah Napa wine, but because geologically it's a really fascinating place. So you have the two mountain ranges that were formed by two very different kinds of events a lot of volcanic activity, and it's a fairly young earth as opposed to someplace like Bordeaux or Burgundy where the slopes are gentle and the soils are a little bit more uniform, just speaking generally. California's coastal mountains are really young. They're probably what I think between only three and seven million years old. So that's a baby. That's new growth for in terrestrial terms. So what's happened is that 
things haven't settled out. There hasn't been enough of the erosion over time or just the settling forces of time. I'm talking, you know, millennia of settling. So everything is still very striated. It's interesting. Within really small stretches of land in Napa, you get this huge diversity in soil. And then, of course, then you have very craggy mountains, two very different ranges. And you've between the, the combinations of aspect and elevation and soil, I mean, it's really endlessly complex and very interesting. You see that addressed in like the most classic example is probably Diamond Creek Vineyard when he and which Dick Steltzner helped develop, incidentally, um, is, you know, looking at the vineyard land in a pretty small vineyard. The property itself is not that big and seeing huge chunks of very distinct soil types you see that everywhere in Napa. Not everybody is making their winemaking around it, but but you do see it everywhere. Who are some of the other key figures like Dick Stelzner that really weave in and out of multiple stories? In as much as Napa has consulting winemakers, there's also consulting viticulturalists. So if you t- if you read through some of the older ones, you see Lori Wood a lot. Lori Wood was kind of the one of the original big viticulturalists. He trained Jim Barber. So Jim Barber trained directly under Lori Wood, and Lori Wood developed, you know, Grace Family and just everything, and probably tons of vineyards that aren't even attributed to him in the book. But he was really important. Ivan Schock was the Mandavi viticulturalist, and he played a lot of roles for a lot of people. And then, of course, you know, you have these sort of these young winemakers that came to Napa and jumped around a lot before they made their own moves to found their own winery, like John Consgard and Rick Foreman and Kathy Corson and Tony Soder was huge in the 90s. And um, Mia Klein worked for Tony. Exactly. Yeah. And she's still making fabulous wines. I think she's very, very talented. When you are in Napa and when you're in New York, because you've worked in a New York market and you sometimes come back to visit, do you see a different perception for Napa wines of different eras? I do now, you know, and I, I, I like to think that we were a little bit a part of that, the wine list, um, and just how connected the sommelier community is. Um, But yeah, on social media, I mean, I don't even have to be in New York. I see it coming up a lot. Everybody's, a lot of really important wine lists in the city now have significant California sections and often California wines with age on it. And I really, maybe I just wasn't looking for that five years ago before I left, but I swear to you it wasn't like that five years ago. You know, I did not see the level of interest. And it's, you know, I think the new California movement has a lot to do because these guys are generally really connected to sommeliers and it's kind of bleeding over into and and and, and social media, et cetera, and it's bleeding over into the consumers, et cetera. Because when I think of someone new California, like Tegan, you know, he likes old California wine. Right. That's what these guys drink, at least when they come to press. But that's, you know, kind of all we have. <laughs> First book for you. It's yeah. over a thousand pages. It yes. took you four years. That seems like quite the effort. Yeah. It was big. It, I didn't think it was going to take that long. I just actually drudged up my original business plan that I presented to Leslie when I was trying to get this book done. And I thought I could finish it in two or three years and, you know, it would be 600 pages. But I mean, I could write this book forever. I think everybody that has written a book could say that because it changes all the time and I learn more and keep adding to my own knowledge, taste more things. But but yeah, it was a, it was a huge undertaking, and you know, quite honestly, I think I went into it a little naively. I'd been doing some writing for a variety of magazines for a number of years, kind of really very 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 part time, almost just for my own pleasure than any kind of real you know economic situation. And um, good approach to being a writer. Yeah, yeah, you do it because you love it, not because you want to get paid, especially now. 
Um, you know, my mother emailed me the other day. She was watching Sex and the City. She said, Sarah Jessica Parker's character, Carrie Branshaw, got $5 a word back in, you know, whenever that was made. Yeah, she lived in a great apartment, yeah. too. Nobody's getting $5 a word anymore. Uh, at least not me. But anyway, um, yeah, I figured, you know, I'll, I'll do a couple hundred producer profiles and then I'll be like stringing together 100 articles. But it was it was so much bigger than that. And of course, I self-published. So I had no, you know, I didn't hire a project manager. So there's a lot organizationally in self-publishing that takes up a lot more time than I had thought. What did you learn from that? I think, you know, if I had it all to do over again, I would have really hired people to help me and delegated a lot of stuff. I, I mean, I think probably because it was my first book, I wanted to have control over everything. But now I see that I spent a lot of time doing things that I didn't necessarily need to be doing. You know, I needed, I probably should have had a research assistant. I probably should have had a, somebody to type up my notes, you know, just little things like that. I would have saved me an enormous amount of time, probably got the book to market a year faster. So, yeah, if anybody is thinking about self-publishing book, they can call me because I have a lot to say. <laughs> I did everything wrong. But, um, but I think the... But I you think, made it, right? I, yeah, and I think it's great, you know. I think it's a beautiful book, and I, I hope that it's very useful to people. I mean... And people aren't people don't really need to be write books anymore. You know, it maybe this book should have been a website where you could click through instead of looking through an index to ruffle through. But I just I love books. Books of wine books have played such an important role in my career and my time at time at Veritas, et cetera, and other points in my life. And I just I, I want I wanted to I wanted it to be a book. I wanted to write a book. I've seen books that have come out galvanize public interest in a way that I don't see online. In the wine industry, you mean? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think New California is a good example of that. Well, I guess, it, you know, it makes sense psychologically. You have a physical object, you're going to launch it, you know, and you can launch a website, but there's no, there's nothing to touch. You know, nobody's throwing a party for launching a website. Well, I mean, maybe they are, but we're publishing a big article, you know. It's, um, the book is a powerful thing. A written word is a beautiful thing. So what about some of the other projects you've been up to and have going on in the future? So I'm still at Press Part-Time. And as is Scott, and we now have two full-time sommeliers working underneath us, which is very exciting because the wine program keeps growing. We get more and more attention every year and people are loving it. And um, I've recently started last February writing for Antonio Galoni's Venice, which is super exciting. So what's that been like? Oh, it's been really, really great. Kind of a kind of a dream job, actually. Just to get a job where you can get paid regularly to write about wine, I think is very cool. And I can probably count the number of people that do that on both hands that I know. So that part's great. Also, you know, Antonio and Marzia are, I think, personally inspirational. They're really hard workers. Um, and the team is really small. It's basically the only people I interact with on a regular basis are James, who's a partner. And nice Marzia, guy. Great guy. And Marzia, a lot. I deal with Marzia probably the most. And she's amazing. Um, but they're wonderful people to work for. And they have a great work ethic and dedication to quality. And, you, you know, it affects you. You want to you want to compete at that level. And it's made me, I think, a better writer and approach things in a more quality conscious way. Not that I was cutting corners before, but, you know, when you're a part of a team, there's a kind of team vibe. You don't um, want to let people down. Exactly. So 10 years from now, when mm -hmm. I have this uh, interview again with Kelly White, will you have published another couple of thousand page books? <laughs> I think I'll have published a couple of smaller books. Honestly, I loved writing this book. If I could, you know, move to all the wine regions of the world and spend five years just drinking the older wines and write a book about it, I think that would be a pretty good life. So I do think that I will do it again. I just uh, just don't know where. 
Kelly White, it's been a pretty good life and an even better book. Thank you very much. Thank you. Kelly White of Napa Valley Then and Now, Venice Media, and Press in St. Helena. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.